My name is Craig Wright. Um, some of you may know me, I don't know. But anyway, I first met uh, Pastor Phil uh, about 10 years ago, I think it was. And uh, I was doing bread deliveries to various uh, churches and charities around Chicago area. And of course, uh, Jim Carr was behind that whole thing. So I met a lot of wonderful people through Jim Carr. Um, but uh, uh, Pastor uh, Phil is um, pastor for, of the Austin Corinthian Baptist Church, better known around here as ACBC. Um, ACBC is an area uh, called the island. And uh, it's an island because it was originally part of Austin, and I guess still is considered that, but it was cut off when the Eisenhower Expressway went through in the 1950s. And now it's uh, got uh, the expressway on the north side, and on the other sides is mostly commercial industrial, so it's kind of a little neighborhood uh, by itself. Unfortunately, it still gets a lot of influence from the Austin area, um, a lot of crime in the area, prostitution, uh, all the other things that go along with the inner city. Um, and back to uh, Pastor Phil, uh, he reminds me of the Apostle Paul <laughs> because the Apostle Paul was also a tent maker. <laughs> now, Phil is also an IT person and uh, so next time the Wi-Fi here at church goes down, we'll know who to call. <laughs> uh, and through ACBC, um, Pastor Phil has uh, fostered a ministry of racial re reconciliation, uh, and he feels that, that the only solution will come through the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. So with that, Pastor Phil Hilliard. Bless you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Giving honor to your illustrious pastor, Pastor Allen, to any of the other ministers, elders, officers, members, and friends, it's a privilege and an honor to be here. Now, we've had a relationship with Hensdale Covenant by more, more than 10 years. It's been more like 15 years. And Hensdale Covenant has been a tremendous blessing to ACBC as well as the community we serve in the west side of Chicago. Um, through the food distribution program, we touch literally hundreds of lives. And people like Jim Carr and uh, Yogi and Craig and Barb and uh, Roger and others came to ACBC and we developed relationships. And uh, I'm not sure if you know, but Hinsdale Covenant has been a, a strong supporter of ACBC. We do a retreat every year and you've been a, a supporter there. And we also have a unity breakfast, which Yogi hosts every September. So September 24th, if you want to come to ACBC, you can do so. Um, but we just have, you, Hensdale Covenant has been a blessing, and we thank the Lord for the relationship. Also, uh, 
We've helped on more than one occasion to clean out your garage in the back. You know, the Lord equipped our small fellowship for a ministry of racial reconciliation. The founding pastor of ACBC, my father, the late Reverend Clarence Hilliard, was for six years pastor of Circle Evangelical Free Church, a predominantly white congregation committed to bridging the racial divide during the turbulent 60s and 70s. Later, he simultaneously led Social Action Commission chairmanships for the National Black Evangelical Association and the National Association of Evangelicals, NAE, a white evangelical association. And it was while conducting a workshop at NAE's 1997 convention that a woman from Florida connected uh, my father to her brother from this area, which led to ACBC commencing what is today a 19-year joint ministry journey with two predominantly white congregations. A few years ago, one of these, the, uh, these ministers and I attended a city-reaching convention in St. Louis. Contingencies from many cities shared their racial reconciliation experiences. Jackson, Mississippi was showcased, and I was encouraged upon hearing that its black and white ministers met weekly. Two ethnically different ministers shared their story and outlined ground rules. But the first ground rule captivated me. It was, we don't field tough issues. Upon hearing that, I asked, how can anything of redeeming value be accomplished when participants who live in a state that Dr. King is sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression are prohibited from discussing tough issues. No cogent answer was given, and since they described Jackson, Mississippi as a, as a city in which railroad tracks literally separated their communities, it is clear Jackson, Mississippi will not be a hub for building God's kingdom on earth until they confront their dark past. Which brings me to my topic. Why is building God's kingdom on earth so challenging? Why is building God's kingdom on earth so challenging? Peter, in the, in the passage that was read this morning, Peter, the author of this letter, was one of Jesus' closest apostles. And the principles outlined in his book of 1 Peter are vital to understanding kingdom principles. Although this whole book is vital, I selected these few verses to clarify texts that I believe were improperly used to control the minds and justify harsh treatment of America's slave population. But more importantly, these verses provide keys to understanding requ requirements for building God's kingdom on earth. With the time I have this morning, I will outline a few principles, five principles at, uh, at a high level. Nevertheless, go home, I ask you to read the whole book of 1 Peter, and if I do not, not do this topic or passage justice, preach it to yourself. Let's discuss these challenging principles. The first is pluralism versus individualism. Culturally, America promotes rugged individualism. The foundation of its economic system is private property. We are taught to idolize Horatio Alger, 
indoctrinated to lift ourselves by our own bootstrap. And competition separates winners from losers. Grabbing for all the gusto you can is commercialized. And today's mantra is, I've got mine, you get yours. The, the Bible advocates community over individuality. Jesus initiated his ministry preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's promise to Abraham was he would make him into a great nation. Jacob's family evolved into a, the nation of Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is a community of believers. And the whole Bible is community-based, with Paul's letter to Titus, Philemon, and two epistles to Timothy being the only exceptions. Peter wrote this morning's epistle, and you can see verse 1-1, to communities dispersed, uh, to communities of dispersed Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And in 2.12, Peter writes, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God's grace and mercy grafted us into his kingdom. So managing one's personal salvation is too small a goal for Christ's followers. We need a kingdom focus concerned with another's salvation. The second challenge is personal fiefdoms versus God's kingdom. Similarly, Americans hoard things, wealth, influence, degrees, perks, property, power, position, and other tangible and intangible assets. Assets are not owned communally, so building our own fiefdoms is how much of our energy is expended. For many, the acquisition of wealth is like a drug. No one ever has enough. Today, 1% of the world's population owns more wealth than the other 99% combined. And the trajectory is for that trend to continue. God instituted Jubilee in the Old Testament, which returns property to its original family every 50 years. I'm not advocating transforming our economic system to socialism or communism. But social issues should concern Christ's followers, just like they concern Christ. In Luke 4, 18, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, a recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We shouldn't stigmatize social programs like welfare and food stamps while lauding welfare to businesses by calling them subsidies or bailouts. When Paul collected an offering for the Corinthians to give to those in Jerusalem, he said, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. Life is cyclical. So when we help others when they are down, they in turn can help us when we are down. 1 Peter 2.5 reads, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up 
spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter calls you and I living stones used to build God's kingdom, which means there is reciprocity. And we need each other as no stone is able to stand independently. Jesus told Peter, on this rock, talking about himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are members not only of Hinsdale Covenant and ACBC, but also the Church of Jesus Christ universally. And respect, with respect to those spiritual sacrifices, Jesus said, if you have done it unto the least of these my brothers, you have done it unto me. Verse 9 also describes this principle when it says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the, the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I don't know about Hinsdale Covenant, but at ACBC, we have bench members who are comfortable attending church, but, we, but don't expect much more from them. God, on the other hand, requires more from his followers. Why? Because we are a chosen generation and could easily have been among those who will not commit their lives to Christ. Why? Because we are a royal priesthood. We have God's royal blood and do not need any intermediary between us and God except Jesus. Why? Because we are a holy nation. And, be, and being holy means to be cleansed of faults and set apart by God who is himself faultless and pure. Why? Because we are God's special people. What did we do to possess that distinction? It is his mercy that brought you and I into his fold. Why? Because Jesus called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what does he expect from us? to proclaim the praises of him, which means telling someone else about his goodness to you. Challenge three is worldly values versus godly values. The Bible says, yes, and all who desire to, to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So why are we not persecuted here in America? Some would say the church has no natural enemies in America, but I beg to differ. The church is definitely under attack by Satan. Jesus called his followers the light of the world and salt of the earth. But instead of the church influencing worldly values, worldly values have crept into the church. This phenomenon is called apostasy, and the rise in apostasy is manifested in different ways. During the past 135 years, many cults, denominations, revivals, movements, and parachurch organizations have come into vogue. But the doctrines, beliefs, practices, and values have shifted to the point that distinguishing God's elect from pagans is difficult because both subscribe to the same worldly values. Homosexuality and adultery are rampant in churches, accepted as an alternative lifestyle, and even plague some in the, in the clergy. Furthermore, instead of God's word offering the condemnation as when written many years ago, it has been neutered, making condemnation either weak or non-existent. 
New age, word of faith, and a distortion of God and you doctrine are pushing many lost souls from faith and into the world of darkness. Peter opens his epistle in 1-1 by appealing to strangers who are scattered across five distinct provinces. And in verse 211, he writes, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter amplifies the distinction in chapter 2 as he identifies his audience as strangers and pilgrims. So the question is, what makes true believers strangers and pilgrims in this world? The Greek word used in the first and second chapters are peripitomos, which in the first chapter is translated strangers, but uh, translated into pilgrims in chapter 2. Metaphysically, this word means, refers to heaven as the native country of one who sojourns on earth. In other words, earth is not the home of true believers. We are just passing through. The second Greek word is peroikos, which has almost the same meaning as peripitomos. Peroikos means one who lives on earth as a stranger or sojourner. And specifically with respect to Christians, it means sojourners whose true home is in heaven. To put it another way, true believers are anomalies in this world. They don't think or act like the world or non-believers. They don't have the world's values, and their beliefs are based upon God's unadulterated word. So a true believer's beliefs are diametrically opposed to the world's beliefs. James describes it this way in James 4.4. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Therefore, unless the thoughts, actions, and values of values and beliefs of God of Christ's followers differ from the thoughts, actions, values, and beliefs of the world, he or she, no matter how well-intentioned, may find him or herself at odds with God while at peace with the world. In other words, need, believers need to be perceived by the world as God's fanatics. When Peter calls them strangers, it is my contention that he is referring to the distinctive difference between Christ's followers and everyone else in the world, regardless of beliefs. Take the United States, for example. Oftentimes, when an ethnic group migrated uh, to the United States, they were treated as strangers. You saw that with Africans, Irish, Polish, Jewish, and others. But over time, they ch many changed their names and seamlessly melded into society. Many blacks also shared their African identity and passed for whites, so they would not be treated as strangers in this country. What Peter is referring to is the people who will always be considered strangers because they think, act, and believe on a level that the world chooses not to. It is to this principle that we who, are, who, believe, who believe we are Christ's followers have to ask the question, Am I living like the world and accepting its value system or living for Christ and therefore is an anomaly within mainstream society? Therefore, if other believers, if others believe one is weird because his thoughts, actions, and beliefs, of his thoughts, actions, and beliefs, and if those thoughts, actions, and beliefs are lived out with conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit, and if those thoughts, actions, and beliefs are consistent with God's word, 
then that person can be assured that he or she is on the right track for one day being accepted by God into the kingdom of heaven. Challenge four is complacency versus confrontation. There's a lot that can be said about this challenge, but I will only focus on social justice. I mentioned earlier that ACBC has an active racial reconciliation ministry, so blacks and whites attend the first Saturday of a month and oftentimes address social justice issues. Uh, many within our fellowship are flabbergasted by the constant injustice that many of our group faced or are facing, and we're talking about fine, upstanding citizens, not hoodlums. But when it comes to justice in America, it is not colorblind. One of ACBC's members named Jason was arrested in October after leaving uh, ACBC to go to work. He was stopped by police officers about two blocks from the church after a prostitute told police his vehicle looked like the one of a person who kidnapped, transported to the far south side, and raped her and other prostitutes weeks earlier. Jason lives in Downers Grove and is ignorant of the south side. The officer jumped into Jason's car, put the prostitute in, the, in this passenger seat, and drove around the neighborhood before the two of them drove to the police station. While in his vehicle, one planted marijuana, so he was charged with multiple rapes, marijuana possession, and a gun charge since he had a firearm in the car, but had a valid uh, firearm owner's identification Ford card, and was scheduled to take a conceal and carry class the following week. His car was impounded to the tune of $4,000 plus daily storage fees to retrieve, and it has since been demolished even though he was assured he would get it back if he won the case. And when his attorney was contacted to pick up the dash cam video from the precinct that shows the police officer and prostitute driving in his car, which is sufficient evidence to have the case completely thrown out, the, the video disappeared before the attorney arrived. The search and seizure was illegal. Jason has made nine court appearances. The state continually asked for continuances, but they are determined to force him to plead guilty to some charge. By the way, this is not an isolated incident. Another black minister within our fellowship was forced to plead guilty to something he did not do. Why? Because that is how justice works for blacks in America. As Christians, injustice should bother everybody. So more people standing with us as we battle injustice, uh, which happened during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, should be a priority. Let's look at four statistics. While people of color only make up 30% of the U.S. population, they comprise 60% of the jail population. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, one in three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The war on drugs has, wait, was, has been waged primarily in communities of color where people of color are more likely to receive higher offenses. And once convicted, black offenders receive longer sentences compared to white offenders. How does Peter address this issue? Let's look at verse 15. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put this to silence, the ignorance of foolish men. There are many who misappropriately stereotype all blacks. Whites we fellowship with have been a blessing because they have become ambassadors, setting the record straight when they encounter ignorance. Others stood with us financially. We have marched together, worshiped together, done prayer walks together, conducted workshops, workshops together, and oftentimes when groups are looking for an urban experience or a community project, they bring them to ACBC. 
In fact, a few years ago, Pastor Lars had a group that he was bringing to ACBC, but another group showed up instead. The following are comments made by Dr. King that address this issue. One, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Two, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Three, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. Four, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Five, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. And six, we rem remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Challenge five is liberty versus servanthood. Even though this is the sixth consecutive year ACBC members are reading through the Bible together, I am, uh, am ashamed to admit that most have not read the Bible completely. The problem is most believers rely upon God's promises, especially salvation, without knowing its details. God makes no absolute promises. God's promises, God's uh, absolute promises are conditional, while God's have explicit conditions. And you can look at your Genesis 3, uh, 16 and 17 as an example. Conditions, therefore, are assessed to monitor one's faith obedience to God. Thus, God establishes covenant relationships with those he makes, uh, to whom he makes promises. His covenants stipulate terms and conditions that must be obeyed and only obligates God to fulfill his promises when those conditions are satis satisfied. Judges 2 verses 1 through 3 also are uh, a good example. The Bible, therefore, is the repository for the terms and conditions of God's covenants. We don't study God's word as Paul commands in 2 Timothy 2.15. We can only live according to our own standard or morality. Jesus taught his apostles, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Peter offers another perspective in verse 16. As free and not using liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. Being a servant of God means our lives are not our own. So God, his word, and the Holy Spirit establishes our code of conduct. Others have used God's word for a cloak of maliciousness as Peter warned. An example is ministers and slave owners who constantly drummed into the heads of their slaves that slaves should obey their masters. I have a different viewpoint. Just like we will celebrate Independence Day tomorrow when the American colonies overthrew the tyranny of English rule, Slaves had the right to overthrow the tyranny of slavery by any means necessary. No African entered American slavery voluntarily. Their enslavement was an act of war. They were stolen from their homes, separated from their families, robbed of their identities, culture, heritage, and humanity, made to endure extreme hardship, and deprived of all rights, privileges, citizenship, and even education. Unfortunately, the effect of almost 400 years of injustice towards the black race is still prevalent within the black community, especially among those who do not know Jesus. So how should we act towards our fellow man? Verse 17 answers that question. And notice that every tenet can be used to build God's kingdom. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Even if he should happen to be Donald Trump. I know what you're thinking. Preacher. You discussed the challenges. So what is the key to building God's kingdom on earth? 
In my opinion, verse 18a addresses this question when it says, Servants, be subject to your own masters with fear. Although there is something to be said about a slave slash servant's obedience to his or her earthly master, Christ's followers are servants to him. And Jesus taught and modeled servant leadership. Therefore, the deeper implication is for Christ's true followers to model servanthood also. The Greek word used in verse 18 is oikides, which truly connotes a domestic servant. But Peter established his motivation in verse 16 when he warns his readers, they are servants of God. The problem is most church members do not understand they are called to a life of servanthood. Jesus has a very interesting exchange in Matthew 23 when he says, but who is the greatest among you, but he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The other two words used more prominently that connote servanthood are diakonos, which is the, uh, one of the der derivations is deacon, and doulos. It is clear that to build God's kingdom, we have to work together. Also, when we look at the composition of those who are in heaven, we see, for you were slain, talking about Jesus, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. As you can see, heaven is cosmopolitan. So if we do not cooperate and work together down here, we will not fit in heaven. Therefore, since there is no homogeneity between us, how can we unite? To be perfectly honest, it is not accepting more people who are different than you into your communities. It is also not accepting more people who are different than you into your boardrooms, country clubs, schools, or even churches. And it is definitely not electing another black president. Math teaches that when disparate fractions are added together, you have to find the least common denominator. And higher fractions are reduced to the least common denominator. The same is true with people. If Christ came with a focus towards the middle class, he would have excluded the very ones he focused on, the downtrodden. Why? Because according to the middle class, the downtrodden are not good enough to be accepted as equals. Case in point, blacks en masse have never been able to assimilate within, within mainstream society as other groups have. But anyone can humble himself and be accepted by the downtrodden. Jesus did it. He instructed the rich young ruler to, to do it. And he told us to do it also in Philippians 2.15, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, can do it, can we afford to do anything less? God bless you. <laughs>